So lesson nine is entitled David's Fall from Grace. We could also go on and call it David's Fall from Grace and the resulting aftermath, the consequences of his sins. But David's Fall from Grace is plenty sufficient because there are always consequences to sin. There, there are always a ripple effect that is going to really damage us uh, in the long run and, and cause us to suffer at our own hand. So that's kind of what we're going to see with our our poor friend David and his great sins with, with Bathsheba and Uriah. Very, very famous. But let's see if we can't dive into some more details here and try to understand what's going on, as well as to understand how we can advance in the spiritual life by uh, avoiding some of the same mistakes that happens to all of us, okay? Now, we're going to be looking at chapters 11 through 18 in this ninth lesson, and then chapter, or rather I should say, lesson 10, next time we'll finish everything off. So we're in chapter uh, 11 right now. The, la- the last lesson was the height of David's career, his kingdom, his family. He just received this incredible covenant from God Almighty himself through the prophet Nathan, all these blessings that are going to be pouring upon him. We saw the characteristics of the kingdom. It's absolutely dynamite, and peace is coming to his kingdom as he's finishing off the rest of his enemies. And now we're going to see the exact opposite. The pendulum is going to swing the other way as he gets seemingly gets complacent or careless, and that's what we're going to find. So let's dive in here and look at chapter 11, verses 1 and following. 1 to 5, to be precise, if you're reading along. It says, In the spring of the year, when the, t- the time when kings went forth to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon, when David arose from his couch and was walking upon the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she was purifying herself from her uncleanliness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am with child. All right, we'll stop right here. So here's the famous story of David Oh, man, falling from grace with his first sin. In fact, what we're going to see here is he's going to fall into multiple sins. Uh, First, covetousness. He's lusting after his neighbor's wife. Then adultery and then murder. So I'm going to share how they all connect here and, and try to glean some spiritual insights from this as well, like I said. So I actually want to point out one thing as we before we dive here into the story of the adultery. Don't forget that we've been seeing all kinds of red flags and warning signs throughout David's whole life, his whole adult life, that have been accumulating more and more women. He's got multiple wives at this point, and that's a very bad thing. So I pointed out in previous lessons, the past two or three, give or take, that Deuteronomy 17 forbids the king from multiplying for himself wives, wealth, and weapons. And we saw from chapters 8 and 9 that David did really, really well about not multiplying for himself wealth and weapons. He would donate the wealth uh, to to God and the temple and to his kingdom. And the, the weapons, like the horses specifically, he would eliminate. Uh, so those are that's like two out of three. That's good. But the problem is he has been multiplying for himself wives, and this is going to be David's downfall. He's always liked women. I think we've made that clear. He doesn't have an unnatural relationship with Jonathan, or at least he didn't. Women has always been his problem. 
And now he's in the habit. He's, he's established. He's powerful. Um, God has given him this great covenant. Maybe he's letting his guard down. And then the previous bad habits of taking whomever he wishes to wife is now going to lead him to take another woman re, uh, to himself, regardless of the fact that she's already married, right? So this is, a, this is actually a really big spiritual lesson for us. There's many throughout this entire story. And that is the fact that in our lives, we never really just wake up one day and commit grave sins, murder or robbing a bank or committing adultery or anything like this. Big sins always result from a long time of committing smaller sins and not repenting of them or uprooting them from our lives. It's always the smaller sins that little by little left unchecked will guide us down the path of a graver mortal sin. I always think of the analogy of a garden. I mean, I, this is not, I'm not the most, <laughs> I'm not the original person to have thought of this, obviously, but it, it always struck with me when I think about it because when you have a garden, I used to have a garden once upon a time. I lived in Kentucky and uh, we, me and my wife started our very first garden. We moved into this little house and in the backyard, they had a 20 foot by 20 foot koi pond uh, with a bunch of big, beautiful koi in there. We're like, oh, this is nice. Let's leave it here. Well, our young daughter at the time, I think she was five, fell into the koi pond. And at that point we realized, well, I guess we can't have a koi pond after all. So we sold the koi and, got, and filled up the pond with dirt and we decided to make it into a little garden. And this is our first time at gardening, really. Like I don't have a green thumb. I never really grew up gardening. I grew up in California, so it's all brown anyways. And uh, we, we soon realized, wow, you know, all these vegetables and plants that we um, put into the ground, the seeds that we put into the ground, they're, they're coming up and we're getting all kinds of vegetables. This is really wonderful. Well, at the same time, the weeds were coming up. And if I got really busy, and I'm often very busy doing whatever it is I'm doing, and a, a couple of weeks goes by and I don't weed the garden, those weeds get really, really big. And I'm telling you, I don't know what kinds of Kentucky weeds these were, but they would get above. I mean, I'm, I live in Virginia now, and they're just as big. So I don't know. It must be just an East Coast thing with all the humidity. But they would get well above my waist to my chest. Like they, These things grew really big. And as you try to rip out that weed in order to protect the rest of the garden, what you, it's Number one, extremely difficult. And number two, it destroyed all the soil where you pulled it out. You have this huge crater now in the ground. And more often than not, you would damage the vegetables that you had planted nearby. So this has been the analogy for me for so, so long of, of the spiritual life. And again, I'm not the, the first person to have thought of this, but you've got to weed your garden regularly. It's really easier. It's much easier and it's less damaging to pull out the weeds when they're just a couple of inches tall. You just bink, 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 pull them all out. Everything's great. No damage to the soil, no damage to the vegetables. But if you let the weeds get too big, then they're going to be, it's going to be very damaging. That's what sin is. Sin is basically the weeds in our spiritual garden. God is trying to produce much fruit through us, through his grace. But if we don't pull out the weeds, it's going to become too big for us to be able to manage effectively, right? So that's that, That's kind of the big thing of what's going on here with David. Just as we launch this whole study of his fall from grace, he didn't weed the garden, the proverbial garden. He's taking wives and do, committing their smaller sins uh, by breaking the law of Deuteronomy. And then now, boom, you've got a, a much bigger problem, okay? Well, let's go on and read some of the details here uh, with, the, uh, with the actual story, and that is in verse 1, it says, In the spring of the year, the time when kings went forth to battle, David remained at Jerusalem. Now, many commentators have pointed out the fact that this seems to be a pretty big red flag and a warning sign. 
He is idle. He is slothful. He is neglecting and abdicating his royal responsibilities of trying to, of needing to be with his army in the spring because he only fought in the spring and the fall. Um, so you, you have to go out there with your army and take care of business. But he wasn't, right? So he was at home where he shouldn't have been. And then he gets up late in the afternoon one day, you know, kicking rocks on the roof. I kind of imagine him sleeping in, right? Late one afternoon, he kind of gets up and stretches, like I'm kind of bored. And he's been playing video games maybe all morning long or something like that. And he just gets up and he just kind of has his hands in his pockets and just kind of wandering around, just kind of, again, not being occupied with good things. Remember the old proverb, idle hands is the devil's workshop? Well, that's essentially what's going on here. And, and, and this is a chain reaction, too, that you're going to see. Along the same lines of weeding your garden, the, the concept is one bad choice can lead to other bad choices, and you got to stop that chain reaction. You should first be occupied with whatever it is God has you to do. You know, hard work or taking care of your family or I don't know. You could fill in the blank. There's a million different scenarios of what God is intending for us to do, work or study or I don't know, whatever, right? And that's not happening with David. So it's a chain reaction. One thing is leading to another. And so when he is on the rooftop, he sees and lusts after Bathsheba while she's purifying herself. That's the first major mortal sin is covetousness. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. She clearly is. It's been proclaimed to him by his messengers. She clearly is married. But one thing leads to another. Now, um, let me say something quickly about the purifying herself. She's purifying herself from her menstrual cycle, which tells us two things. Number one, she is not pregnant. That's really, really important. Yeah, her husband, Uriah, has been out on the battlefield, so uh, she's certainly not uh, conceived through him, her, um, her husband, and also through anyone else for that matter, okay, up to this point, because she's just purifying herself. Her period's over, and she's in her fertile period, okay? So this is kind of a, a red flag here, like, oh my gosh, David is going to take this woman in a, in a time where clearly she is most capable of conceiving a child. All right, so that's the first point that you need to understand about the purifying herself element. And then again, I just wanted to share with you along the lines of, you know, the chain reaction, weeding the garden and being very, very careful to um, keep yourself upright and righteous and the small things, and then the large things will take care of themselves. Here's a little quote from Clement of Alexandria, St. Clement of Alexandria. And the tradition says, the appetites are inflamed by the sensuality of the gaze. And our eyes, used to looking lustfully at our neighbor because we are so idle, spark impure desires. All right, so we got to keep a, a close um, custody of the eyes. And we're not talking just to simply about sexual sin. That could be any kind of sin that our eyes might desire, right? So he sees after her, the spark of impure desires uh, is ignited, like Clement says. And then he sends and he inquires after her identity. And that's really interesting. So he inquires after her identity, and a couple of different commentators will point out the irony here about, well, let me just read this quote for you. It says, on previous occasions, David inquired about the Lord's will for his life. And there's a couple of references here in chapter 2, 1, 5, 19, and 23, etc. But now, instead of seeking direction from God, he seeks information about a woman who has captivated his senses. Isn't that really, really interesting? That kind of gives you an indication of how his priorities are all askew. His moral compass is not working anymore. Previously, he used to inquire of God, Lord, what is your will for my life in this situation? 
And now he's not doing that because if he inquired of God, guess what? God would say, don't touch her, right? Forget about it. You've got plenty of wives already. Just go visit one of them, you know, set up a little candlelight dinner or whatever you got to do. Don't go near her. But he doesn't inquire after God. He inquires after her identity and then learns, like we already saw, she is married to Uriah. Now, Uriah is one of David's top soldiers. We'll talk more about him in just a, just a little bit. Now, before we move on to this uh, this other major issue, which is murder, uh, I do want to point out that we have zero idea or confirmation or certainty about Bathsheba's role in all of this. Depending on who, what you read and who you listen to, some people might go from one extreme and say that Bathsheba staged all of this. She is kind of like a, an opportunist, and she knew that David would be on the roof, and so she places herself at the right window at the right time, um, uh, bathing so that way he would see her. And so she wanted this whole thing and invited it. You will find people who maintain that. To the opposite um, extreme, which is she is, and it's not even an extreme because it's actually my position. Uh, she's she's an innocent victim. Like David, um, may, maybe she's careless. I, I don't know. Like it's hard to get into this. Why would she be bathing at the window um, so close to the, uh, the palace of David? Well, number one, she's so close to the palace of King David because Uriah was one of his top commanders. So Uriah had prime real estate living there in Jerusalem next to the king because he was a trusted commander of the king. And that explains that. Um, but she she more than likely was innocent. Uh, she did not invite this. And when the king sends for her, it's not likely that you're going to resist the king's advances and potentially um, be violated, like violently violated by him or have Uriah be uh, sentenced or removed from his post or whatever. She's in this horrible situation where she has to go through with it, maybe to protect the, her best interests and her husband's best interests. There's a lot of speculation as to what's going on, but I just wanted to make the point, I do not think that she was the one who invited this and orchestrated it because she wanted to maybe have her son become the king. And that's the, I just think that's not well-founded at all. I think, especially as we're going to see with the parallels in David's life, she is a victim of his sexual advances, okay? So with that then... She, where we just left off in verse five, she sends a little note, a little, not a tweet, I suppose, because then people would read that private tweet, I guess. She sends him a note saying, I'm with child. And so David must initiate operation cover up as quickly as possible. So we're in verse six. David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Jacob sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing, how the people fared, how the war prospered. And they got down to business, right? Go down, uh, David said to Uriah, go down to your house, wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. So what is David doing here? David is trying to cover up, trying to get Uriah to go home very obviously and sleep with his wife. So David is trying to, as much as he can, set up this amorous evening at home, right? Now, who is this Uriah? Now, for, let's just talk about a couple of things about who he is. Uriah is a Hittite, which in, tells us immediately that he's a Gentile convert. In fact, Uriah means Yahweh is my light. And that's a very beautiful name, I think. You know, you talk about how God is the light uh, of the world. Jesus comes down, says, I'm the light of the world. And that's really, it's just a beautiful, beautiful name for a Gentile. So he's a convert. Uh, he clearly seems to have a good relationship with God because he's he's going to follow the law very, very well and, and follow the obligations that are set upon him as a man of war. We're going to go through those details in just a second. 
Um, I think I pointed out to you earlier that he is one of David's mighty men and most trusted soldiers and commanders. You find those details later on in 2 Samuel chapter 23, um, verses 8 and 39. So he, he is, he's not just some some quote-unquote random vague neighbor of David's. This is someone that David knows. So David has really betrayed someone very, very close to him, someone who's very loyal to him, uh, which makes, makes the sin all the more bitter here, right? So I will say also one thing about Bathsheba. If, if Uriah is a Gentile and a convert is Bathsheba, well, you're going to find uh, debate about this. Um, so Bathsheba's name means daughter of the oath, or daughter of the covenant. So Bath, this is actually going to be really interesting for Nathan's parable. Bath means daughter, and then Shava means oath or covenant. So some people say her name is Bathshua, which is a Gentile origin. There's no consensus on this of whether or not she is a Gentile who married a Gentile, both of whom converted and rose up the ranks in David's army and in position. Don't exactly know. Um, I, in fact, I haven't studied that in, in super great depth, what her lineage is um, down the line. But uh, it's, it, it's an interesting thought, and especially if you compare it with the genealogy of Matthew uh, in chapter 1 of the Gospel of Matthew. You've got four women mentioned. Two of them are 100% Gentiles, which is Rahab and Ruth. Um, Tamar, who conceived by Judah, is I, I'm of the position that she's a Canaanite. And then, so therefore, you would have Bathsheba, true to form, if she's a Gentile, then you've got four Gentile women in the genealogy of Jesus, which is really interesting, okay? All right, so there's Uriah, the little biography of him. And so back to our story, David tries to uh, get him to go home, have this lovely dinner. He even sends a present back home with Uriah, but Uriah refuses. He refrains. Uh, it says in verse 9, he slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. And when they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said, the ark of Israel, uh, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths and my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in an open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Now, this is actually a, a really good indicator that Uriah is a very faithful man, a, a really authentic convert to, we wouldn't say Judaism proper, because Judaism, as we know it, didn't even uh, develop until uh, really after the Babylonian captivity to a certain extent, and then certainly after the, the Roman destruction of the temple. But for lack of a better um, expression, the religion of Israel, I think that's really accurate. So it's what's, what he's saying here is that Look, the law says in Leviticus and Deuteronomy that when you're fighting a battle, you must remain ritually pure. You must not sleep with your spouse. So that's what I'm doing. And how how would it be if I went home and slept with my wife and broke the law when everyone else, my com com companions at arms, are out there fighting in the field? So this is a very honorable and laudable thing that Uriah does. All right, now, a second time, David tries to make this evening at home <laughs> happen by the classic strategy of getting him drunk. And, that, and that's what happens next. Uh, that was verse 13. David invited him and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went on to lie uh, on his couch with the servants of his Lord. So twice now, two for two, even after being inebriated a bit, Uriah proves to be the better man. So then that leads to the tragic story in verse 14 and following when David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it ironically and tragically by the hand of Uriah himself. 
How awful is that? Uriah is carrying a letter with his own death sentence in it. And David says to uh, to Joab, go and make sure, essentially make sure he dies in battle, okay? Which Joab, by, I should point out, is, is happy to comply. Joab has no scruples. He's proved to be a murderer himself uh, multiple times in the past, and we're not even done talking about his story. So he's going to be like, okay, whatever, whatever you need, king, like, you know, might makes right, you know, whatever we need to secure the throne and secure our interests, personal or otherwise. So, of course, he dies in battle. Um, a messenger comes back from Joab to tell King David at the end of chapter 11. And David understands. You can read the whole chapter for yourself. We've got a lot to cover in this lesson here. But to summarize it here, um, the messenger tells David what happened and that how they, lo- they were losing in battle. Uriah was killed. And then David responds to the messenger in verse 25, do not let this matter trouble you. So tell Joab, do not let this matter trouble you. Literally, the Hebrews, do not um, let this be evil in your eyes. And then it goes on and it's talked about how your, uh, the wife of Uriah, Bathsheba, it's always saying the wife of Uriah, by the way, note that because it's making, the text is making it clear that this is not David's lawful wife. It's the wife of another man. And it's just kind of hammering home the point over and over again that David committed these grave sins. So it says that she mourned for him and then went um, to David and he married her. But the last verse is the thing was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And here's a couple of contrasts in this story. Note how Uriah, a Gentile convert, a well-established soldier or commander in David's army, but nevertheless, pretty low-born dude here. He is very faithful and honorable to the law, to his commanders, to his compatriots. He's not even going to do even a small thing like lawfully sleep with his wife. You know, he's not going to do any of that because he's such an upstanding dude compared to the king himself, who is the king of all of Israel, right? Who has received all these blessings from God. And he's acting like a total criminal. He's acting like a total sinner in every which way, sleeping with his wife. And then, of course, down the line, getting Uriah killed himself. And I should also point out, it's not just Uriah who's killed. But when they, if you read the details of the report of the battle, uh, Joab had to send a bunch of men forward. Uh, then archers started firing. So in order to get Uriah killed, there was a lot of collateral damage. There were other soldiers, good fighting men who died as well. So it's a t- complete disaster here, an absolute disaster. You've got this contrast between David, who is the king, who is acting so dishonorably, versus Uriah, who is a servant of the king, and a Gentile convert to boot, who is acting very honorable and very laudable. You see? All right, and then there's that final contrast I pointed out. David will say to Joab, ah, don't let this thing be evil in your eyes. Um, but God, for God it was. David says to Joab, ah, don't let it be evil in your eyes, but it was evil in the sight of the Lord. It was evil in the eyes of the Lord. So no moral relativism here in all of this. David seems to have forgotten his place by, you know, throughout these months or years or what, however long it lasted of him being firmly established in his rule and things just got out of control. And now he's trying to just brush it off. Ah, don't let it be evil in your eyes or in your sight, but it will always be evil in the sight of the Lord. And that also is an expression that's a callback to the whole era of the judges, of the moral relativism that plagued the, the judges and they did whatever they wanted to do. Okay. So this is a disaster of a story. His double whammy sin, actually triple like I pointed out, because he first lusts and covets her. 
commits adultery with her, and then murders Uriah in order to, um, to cover up the story. Now, because this was evil in the sight of the Lord, the Lord's not going to let this slide.